Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, and I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Jeff Barrett, who's the Chief Science Officer and Director at Genomics PLC, a scale-up company based in Oxford and Cambridge here in the UK. Um, so I originally actually know Jeff from my PhD days, um, so he was one of my uh, supervisors while I was working on my PhD, but I'm excited to have him on today because he has a really interesting background, how he got into genomics and statistical genetics in the first place, and the company Genomics. PLC is doing some very fascinating stuff, not just in precision medicine, but also in drug discovery, helping discover the next generation of drugs. So Jeff, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be here. Great. I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, just starting by telling everyone how you got into the field of genetics in the first place. Sure. So I did my undergraduate in physics at MIT. And after I graduated, I kind of knew before I had finished I wasn't going to be a physicist. And after I graduated, I got a job at the Whitehead Institute, which was uh, sort of a, well, it still exists. The bit that I was in, the Center for Genome Research, was the precursor actually to the Broad Institute. Uh, and I was in Mark Daly's lab there, basically working as a programmer and uh, analyst of genetics data. And that was in the kind of early days of when technology had really let us start to measure genetic variation data in reasonable amounts to start thinking about what are the patterns of variation in, in human genomes. And I got sort of so interested in that, that after uh, a couple of years, I decided to do a PhD in statistical genetics. And I actually moved to the UK at that point um, to Oxford to do my PhD, uh, thinking I might live abroad uh, for a few years and then move back to the US. But now uh, I've never made it back so far. And my PhD was in the, just in the starting point of uh, genome-wide association studies, GWAS, when we could sort of take that understanding of variation in populations and actually try to see which genetic variants are associated with um, changing risk of different human diseases. And then I kind of pursued uh, an academic career in the years after that, really building on that same theme as technology got better and better at measuring genetic variation in more and more individuals, we learn more and more about the genetics of a wide range of different human diseases, um, both kind of common, complex human diseases, things like diabetes, and I worked on inflammatory bowel disease for a long time. Um, and then later, in fact, in some of the work that uh, you and I did together, Patrick, in rare, uh, more uh, genetically homogenous human diseases where you might have a patient with a, a single mutation in one gene that um, really causes that. Then um, towards, I was at the Sanger Institute uh, in the Human Genetics Department for about 10 years, and in the last three years of that, I was also director of Open Targets, which is a public-private collaboration between Sanger, the European Bioinformatics Institute, and now I think it's five uh, pharma companies. And the goal there was to sort of bring what we had learned about the genetics of different diseases into close contact with translation drug discovery research in those companies. And that was my kind of first exposure to thinking about these scientific problems outside of an academic environment. And it was you know, something that really got me thinking. It was very exciting. And then uh, almost exactly two years ago, I moved full-time uh, to be CSO at Genomics PLC, um, which, as you mentioned, is a scale-up. I do like that term, actually. I sometimes yeah. call it a startup, but it's really... Better good. than startup, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Genomics is about five years old now. And so I joined about two years ago and have been thinking about really the same set of problems. How do we take all of this stuff we've learned about the genetics of disease and deploy it, as you mentioned, in both uh, precision health and drug discovery contexts. And it's been a, a really exciting um, transition since then. 
Great. If we if we kind of go back to the the first part of your bio, where you were looking at genome-wide association studies and some of the first ones, what were you all expecting to find then, and and how has how has reality been different than that? Has it been faster, slower, or just different in some ways than maybe was expected at that time? Yeah. So that, that's a really good question. You know, I think the field certainly around you know, let's say the time of the sequencing of the human genome in 2000, um, expected things would happen really fast and we'd find the genes for diabetes or for cancer or for, um, you know, high cholesterol or whatever. And if you look at the kind of design of those early studies, a lot of people thought we'd kind of crack the genetics of these, these diseases with, you know, looking at a thousand patients' genomes or something like that. Right. And what's actually happened is that for those kinds of diseases, there isn't a simple genetic architecture. Instead, there are thousands of different genetic variants, each of which are kind of changed by a tiny amount, some aspect of the complicated biology that underpins these diseases. And it's really the, it's not one or two genes for diabetes, it's the cumulative effect of thousands. And that was a bit of a surprise and has taken, I think, kind of a long time for the whole community to catch up with the reality that there aren't just one or two genes, but, but this very long list. And there's a, there was a long era of kind of critique of, you know, GWAS was a complete failure because we didn't find the gene for these diseases. And I, I kind of find those, those, um, that viewpoint to be a, a bit silly because, you know, nature is what it is. Like it would be convenient if there was one gene for diabetes. Right. And if you knew that gene and you made a drug that changed its function, you would cure the disease. But it, that's not how nature has left us. So, you know, we, we have to kind of exist in the, the world such as it is. And I think now there is a, a sort of better appreciation that, you know, these things just have lots of subtle genetic influences and the decoding of them and the understanding of how they relate to developing better treatments is just a much longer and more complicated story. Right. No, I think that's a good way to put it. If it, if it were that simple, it would be great, but it's not. So... Let's uh, let's deal with it. So on those lines, if you mentioned precision health and drug discovery, would you mind uh, maybe just explaining what Genomics PLC does and and maybe in brief how you're using genetic data in those two areas? Sure. So the starting point for us is is an opportunity about data that have been, that through the the kind of history that we're just talking about has become really widely available and and statistical methods for analyzing those data in a way that we think reveals, um, you know, deep insights into biology that can be deployed in various ways. So just to say briefly about the data, a couple of points. One is we, we have relatively little proprietary in-house data. Almost everything we analyze is the fruit of published academic uh, work. And, you know, we, we really are incredibly grateful for the efforts of the genetics research community in making this these valuable data sets uh, accessible to, to both other academics as well as, as commercial companies like us. Um, we have invested a huge amount in the kind of harmonization, processing, alignment of those data such that our scientists can kind of really seamlessly work with, a um, you know, I think a unique resource of something on the order of 15,000 different diseases and traits where you can ask what any given variant in the genome, what effect that any given variant in the genome has. So that's a big piece of work in, in kind of creating this analysis-ready data asset that we have, uh, what we call summary-level data, um, where instead of having individual genomes, we have these statistical summaries that are we're able to sort of extract the key information in aggregate to understand what bits of biology are 
most important to different diseases? And also, what are the sort of shared or intermediate uh, traits and phenotypes and diseases that are, that are also affected by the same genetic perturbation? So what do I mean by that? It's useful to be able to say this variant sitting somewhere in the genome increases your risk for uh, diabetes by 5% or 10%. It's much more useful from the perspective of drug discovery to say, we understand something about the, the kind of biological uh, chain of events that leads from a DNA variant to disease. It changes the expression of a gene in a certain cell or tissue type, and that leads to a certain protein complex being turned over at a different rate in those cells, and that leads to a less efficient signaling cascade, which causes over the course of your life a sort of buildup of a particular um, you know, bit of protein or something which changes your risk of disease. Because it's really right. all of those intermediate pieces that the drug industry cares about because the thing you're drugging isn't the DNA variant almost always, but instead some bit of that kind of biological cascade and you want to figure out the right place to try to design a, a medicine. Right. So if it was in something like ca cardiovascular disease or heart failure, it's really useful to know whether it's related to blood pressure or related to the amount of cholesterol you're producing or the more information you have, the better, right? Exactly. And then the, the sort of the other piece where we can deploy the same high-level data asset and, and statistical algorithms, but in a slightly different way is instead of thinking, you know, learning from the genomes of millions of people in this sort of summarized database that we have, if, you, if, I, if I had your genome, what useful things could I tell you about it based on what I know about what did different variants do? And that might be uh, for example, to predict, predict your risk for a particular disease. So for instance, in the UK, I think once you turn 40, so it's a little bit far off for you still, but get there at some point, uh, you can get a, a health check with the NHS and they'll measure various things, including your cholesterol and your blood pressure and some of the stuff we were just talking about. And if you're above a certain predicted 10-year risk for heart disease, they'll put you on statins, cholesterol-lowering drugs. Uh, so this is a really you know effective public health prevention measure because those statins are extremely cheap to prescribe. They have almost no side effects. They will definitely lower your cholesterol and you know, have a long uh, track record of uh, trials proving that they will reduce your cardiovascular outcomes, which can be very expensive if you, know, you have a heart right. attack at the age of 50. Now, what we have shown is um, if you add genetic information on top of that, you can substantially increase uh, the kind of accuracy of your population level prediction. So you can take certain individuals who would have been given the kind of green light, you're at pretty low risk, and actually say, with this additional piece of information, you're at an elevated risk for heart disease, and so we're going to move you on to the, the statin track. Right. And, and using this amazing resource called the UK Biobank, which is uh, half a million sort of middle-aged Brits who have been um, consented to an amazing amount of studying of their genetics, as well as their right. health outcomes and lots of other measurements, we can kind of pretend, we can hide some of the data and pretend we don't know what's going to happen and actually test what using genetic information might help us do. And, and we can really show that the rate of cardiovascular disease in those genetically risky individuals who are currently kind of invisible to the clinical program, they are at an extremely elevated actual risk over the next 10 years. And so we can save a lot of um, cardiovascular disease by basically adding this kind of data. And just one thing I'll, I'll add there is, almost to our surprise, the genetic information is largely independent of other... Um, things you can measure like cholesterol or your um, weight or your blood pressure and even um, family history. So obviously genetics contributes to your cholesterol and that contributes to your heart disease and, and your family history is in part about 
your shared genetics with your family, but also about your shared environment. Um, so there's a little bit of a correlation, but we were kind of amazed at how weak that is, which really means this is a, a type of data that can be measured today relatively straightforwardly. And in some examples, at least, like the one I gave you, um, deployed in, I think, a, a sort of place that's, that will be actually clinically useful. What is the information that's missing from the healthcare system? Do we have any idea what is it that the genetics maps to that we either aren't or can't measure in some other more conventional way? It's a good question. It, it'll depend on a case-by-case basis in which disease right. we're talking about. But I think one of the things, actually, I think one of the reasons is, is ties to one of the reasons why we do the same, we use the same kind of data in drug discovery, which is the drug industry is really unusual in how failure prone it is. So very right. smart people spend lots of money to come up with an idea that if I make a molecule that will move this protein up or down by this amount, it will benefit people with this disease. And then the only way you really can test that is by doing clinical trials in people, giving them the drug and seeing what happens. And if you start from that point, where you've already invested quite a lot to make a, a drug, only like one in 10 of those eventually becomes a marketed medicine in the future. So we're nine out of 10 times failing. And there's lots of reasons why sometimes things aren't as safe as you'd like them to be. Sometimes the, the commercial opportunity changes, but really it's at least half and probably more simply because they don't work. Yeah, I've heard of three quarters. So that is, biology is super complicated. And even in, even in diseases where we have a pretty good handle, we often understand relatively little at a kind of deep level, the biology of these diseases. And so genetics clues can both point us to new opportunities that might be unexpected for, for identifying new drugs, but also um, in the case of the precision health situation we were talking about, pointing out essentially bits of biology that are not yet fully understood enough to say this is a, this is a biomarker that we could measure to help us uh, predict, predict someone's risk. Besides the cardiovascular disease example that you've been using, your coronary artery disease, what are the other conditions where we're where we're getting very close to being able to use this kind of test in, you know, in somewhere like the NHS where you might consider doing it to everybody at age 40, for example? Yeah, I mean, we're working up a number of examples. Um, I would say probably the second most interesting one after the cardiovascular one is uh, in breast cancer, where there is an existing screening program, and you could imagine using genetic information to complement that. I think it's, I think it's important to note that... Um, genetic predictors of, of risk of these diseases are definitely not accurate enough to use by themselves as a population screening. It's not going to be the case that we sequence everyone's genome at age 40 and then can magically predict who's going to have a heart attack or get breast cancer. Instead, it's better to think of them, I think, more like measuring someone's cholesterol where it's a risk right. factor. And so you can kind of adjust your decision-making or your your standard of care based on knowing they have a, an elevated risk in this particular factor, which is a genetic one, as opposed to, say, um, uh, cholesterol or, or other things like that. So in breast cancer, there are screening programs. You could imagine, um, for example, adjusting the interval between screens for different women. So very high-risk women might get mammograms more frequently or perhaps starting with a slightly younger age. Lower-risk women might have them slightly less frequently. Um, the, the, you know, you can think of different ways of kind of trying to essentially deploy healthcare resources to get the best possible set of outcomes. Um, and I think, you know, that, that those two examples are ones where we might see real actual um, use cases in the relatively near future. Where are people doing the best at 
testing these in the real world in healthcare systems? Are there? I know there's a couple of good programs in Scandinavia. Are, are there any happening here in, in the UK or in the US that you're aware of? Yeah. Um, so I don't know of any in the UK or the US that are that are currently active. I do know there have been some um, research uh, examples in Finland and possibly in other places in Scandinavia. And I don't know if any of those have yet reached the um, the level of, say, carrying out a prospective clinical trial and really using genetics as an intervention. So, so I right think right. that's something that's going to have to sort of develop in the in the coming years. We did a little bit of an experiment before this podcast and took a few questions via Twitter. Uh, it's the first time we've done it, and and I think it was a raging success. One of the questions, which you actually touched on earlier, I, I think it was a joke um, from. Luke Jostens Dean was where can you find the summary statistics from the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium? I think uh, for anyone who doesn't understand what that means, he's basically asking where can he find some data from a project Jeff worked on a long time ago. But you mentioned earlier how much academic study funded data that's summarized and not individual level is available. Why? Why is that? Because I think this is a typical in genetics or genomics compared to other fields of science. Do you, do you know why the spirit of data sharing is so strong in, in genomics? And Yeah, I think and- it actually goes back, in a way, to the, the kind of principles of the, the publicly funded Human Genome Project that um, John Selston especially, but also the, the sort of American leaders of the Human Genome Project, were incredibly strong advocates that the human genome is a kind of it's a shared aspect of us as a species. And so kind of, you know, as we started to get to the point where we could sequence it and understand it and decode it, um, they felt very strongly that it was important that the whole planet had access to this kind of shared understanding. And that was a, that's different than the, the data that, that I'll talk about in a, in a second, the sort of genetic disease association data. But I think that community sort of set themselves up very early on as saying, we're going to push this out into the world and, and, set that up sort of separately from the traditional academic, keep things relatively secret until you publish them, and sometimes even after that. Um, because a lot of the people who work in the, you know, the field of genetic association data started in that you know, more general kind of uh, human genome project era and, and community. Right. And then more recently, I think there has just been a sense that the individual studies, as I kind of mentioned, people started... Um, studying a thousand patients in a particular disease or something. And it became clear that that wasn't going to be enough. And so then the obvious next step was that I had my thousand cases of disease X and you had your thousand cases of disease X. And we, we jointly formed a consortium and we analyzed them together. And so then the data were kind of um, being shared within small to medium-sized groups of researchers. And I think the step that happened after that was a realization that, well, actually, our, our data about, you know, disease X is relevant as well to people studying disease Y. And so to get benefit from all of this research to patients someday, which is, you know, presumably the reason we do it, um, we have to sort of share more widely. I think funders and journals both also encourage that kind of ethos. And it kind of all those different factors sort of then built a great culture, which is now there's really an expectation that these things are shared pretty widely and, and without restriction. And then the last comment I'll make is, you know, in the early days, there was sensitivity about obviously genetic data is so there's a there's a kind of contrast between the shared genome that is most almost the exact same amongst all humans, and then the very private bit of you know our individual variation. 
from that shared genome. And um, that is sensitive data. And so there are justifiable reasons why you have to be very careful sharing those data. And so the evolution of kind of protocols where you could summarize and anonymize the data in ways where it's safer to share was also a big help in kind of making investigators feel that they were treating the importantly private data of their uh, patients and collaborators with the sort of respect that it requires. Right. And then a, a second good question that came up on Twitter was you worked for a number of years in academic research, you know, universities and nonprofit entities. How have, how has things changed now that you're working for a, um, for a private company? Do, ha- have you found that research is different in some substantial ways? Yeah. I mean, I've been for the most part found it to be very similar and I, you know, I think it depends in both academia and in a private company. It depends on exactly where you're working, what your sort of colleagues and environment is like. I mean, genomics is a great place to work. It has an incredibly stimulating intellectual environment. And the problems that we work on here are approximately exa- you know, exactly the same as the ones that I worked on as an academic. And so in that sense, it's rewarding and satisfying. Um, there, are, there are some differences and some are better and worse. Um, you know, I like talking about science with other scientists and in a company you have to be a little bit more careful what you say than as an academic um genomics isn't a sort of let's be secret just for the sake of being secret company but still there are reasonable boundaries you have to respect and that means you can't just you know in a bar talk about literally anything you want to whereas which is i what i would have done as an academic right so that's a bit of that's you know uh, you kind of you have to live with it it's it's fine i don't think it's a you know i don't think it's a really bad thing but it's a difference on the flip side, you know, I think the academic system has some incentives, which are a bit unfortunate about, you know, individuals have to have their own projects so they can get papers and you have to ascribe credit in a very specific way that usually doesn't reflect accurately the reality of who did work. Um, and I found that frustrating and, you know, people try their best to work in the system, but really it's a system that I think has a lot of, um, challenges working in a small company, you know, you really can build teams where the goal is to solve this problem and everybody kind of does the part that they're best suited to do. And if we as a team solve the problem, then everyone wins and we all feel good about it. And I've really enjoyed that. And when I talk to people who are interested in jobs at genomics, you know, that's one of the things that I do say, I think is, and it's, different people like different things. I don't, I'm not trying to say one is better or worse, but for me, I do like that idea that we can kind of focus in on the problem and getting to the end of it rather than necessarily framing it in the in the infrastructure of grants and papers and so forth that, that academia is built around. Right, yeah, whereas as long as the interests of the company are aligned with your scientific interests, then you have a lot of latitude, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a good point. People do worry about, with some, some uh, reasonably, I think, you know, how much freedom do you have to do science in a company versus academia? And it might be a little bit more constrained in a company, but actually I think for most academics, you pretty much have to do science that can get funded, get published, you know, fits in with what data are available, et cetera. So it's not, you know, quite as you can do whatever you want as as some might make it up. Once people win a Nobel Prize, that's when they tend to start really doing what they want, right? Yeah, exactly. Then you can literally do anything you want. Any crazy (laughs) idea you can decide to present. Yeah. So what what are the set of most interesting problems that you're tackling right now, either specifically or, or more generally do, because you, you're kind of sitting on top of the scientific strategy. So you probably have several teams that you're, that you're working with, right? Yeah. So we have a, you know, sort of variety of, of ongoing, uh, exciting activity in the company. 
um, in terms of sort of actively pursuing drug discovery, we have a collaboration with Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which has been going for about a year. It's really great. We work on a specific set of diseases with them to uh, discover new targets that they might be interested in. Uh, and they're a really excellent kind of intellectual um, partner in, in that project. We, you know, as you might expect, given the, the background of the founders and the kind of senior team in the company, spend a lot of time trying to think about the statistical methods and problems for analyzing this huge pile of data that we've um, aggregated. One thing that, that I find kind of interesting there is we've really moved towards trying to build models where instead of sometimes certain problems can be seen as distinct problems in the academic literature, but we really find that trying to build models that jointly solve more than one of these problems gets you a lot of benefit because basically if you do a little bit better on each one, it improves your solution of the others. And if you iterate across that, it can be very powerful. So to give you one example, um, you know, I mentioned we have this database of the summary data from, from, you know, 15,000 different diseases and phenotypes. And, you know, you might say, I'm going to look at them one by one and say at any given part of the genome, is there a signal here? But instead we've built um, methods that simultaneously analyze all of that data for any given slice of the genome. And you can think about three problems. One, for any study, is there a signal here? Does genetic variation in this bit of the genome do anything? Two, which variant is biologically causal? And for those of you listeners who think about this, the pattern of variation in the human genome is correlated for reasons about our sort of population history. And so there's this constant problem of separating correlated from causal associations. And the third one is, if I see some associations in different um, different diseases, are they the same or different? You know, is it right. just coincidence they're near each other? And those, there are statistical methods to look at each of those three things. We find that by building one model that kind of iterates through them is is a really interesting approach. And you can, you, we're just sort of getting to the point where you can also imagine layering on additional kinds of data types, like functional annotations of what you can try to predict different variants actually do uh, in different cell types can be can be similarly informative. And then I think uh, in terms of precision health, you know, we have a number of interesting sort of methodological approaches where you try to, some of the stuff I just described about better understanding the, um, the causal variants for particular diseases can improve your uh, ability to predict individuals' risk and can also improve your ability to transfer those predictions between different ancestries, which, again, for readers or listeners who... Um, who follow this area closely, one of the challenges that a lot of the extant data that we make predictions from is, is from individuals of European ancestry. And so we're really working hard to try to improve that predictability into more diverse ancestries, because obviously that's a key to making yep. these technologies really useful in a clinical setting. We had Alicia Martin on a previous episode and, and talked a lot about this, actually. How, what do you see as, as the solution to this problem? Or, or is it gathering more varied and diverse data? Or are there also statistical things we can do to do a better job? I think it's twofold. There has to be a, a data uh, increase element to it, which is just that there is, um, you know, there is clearly variation that we're missing and also calibration of of what variants are relevant in different um, ancestries that needs to happen by just increasing the pool of data we have. And, and as I said, I think there are some statistical things you can do about, um, gets into a little bit of technical detail, but basically um, the more you can make accurate statements about causal variants, that this G to a T actually you know, changes the accessibility of the way the DNA is, is wrapped up in, in T cells, um, which triggers immune reaction or something like that, the more you can sort of get right down to that as opposed to 
this A to a C variant is like correlated with something in a way I can't really predict, which if, you, if you're just predicting in the same population, that information is actually pretty useful. If you want to transfer it, it suddenly becomes not so useful because basically those correlations to the underlying biology are different in different ancestries. Right. That completely makes sense. And I, it also, me coming more from a neuro, you know, neurodevelopmental disorders or kind of general brain conditions side of things, it's also quite daunting to think about going from a genetic change to some change in the brain, especially later in life, if you think about things like Alzheimer's or or mental health, when it, if you think about schizophrenia or depression, that mapping that causal chain of how does this change actually result in some change in the brain 75 years later. Yeah, exactly. I, d- I do think that IPS, that is stem cell-derived neurons, um, give you a really exciting kind of experimental approach to that for for the developing brain but i totally agree that that's still pretty far away from okay now we have this thing and they've aged for 75 years and i think that's really hard to simulate in a dish right in thinking about drug discovery how genetics helps find new new targets or new genes that we should be new genes or proteins we should be trying to knock down is there a difference between maybe simpler tissue or cell types that we understand more about, like, you know, you mentioned immune cells versus things like the brain, or, or is it the data useful in that capacity as well? You know, there is variance. I think there's an interesting kind of hierarchy of if you want to understand the cellular function of a genetic variant or a protein or whatever, you know, there are these workhorse kind of cell lines that experimentalists have used for a long time that are almost all essentially derived from cancers and they you know their genomes are kind of messed up in such a way that they grow infinitely in a dish and that's why they're great to use to do experiments because you can't kill them and you You can't kill them (laughs) but they are pretty messed up and so there's an open question about whether they recapitulate the you know nuanced human biology you might want to be drugging and then i think as i you know mentioned in, in passing there these these stem cell derived experimental models i think are a really nice step into something that is still tractable, although they can be quite difficult to work with, you know, in, a, in an experimental assay, but is much closer to the to the real biology. And of course, what you'd ultimately really like to do is to do your experiment in primary cells actually taken from a person that are exactly, you know, at the site. So for immune cells, that's often possible because you can take them from blood or even if you want them from the sort of site of the inflammation, it's, you know, it's, it's accessible. Um, if you want to do the same thing for brain, that's pretty much impossible uh, you know, and you can imagine other tissues have different layers of inaccessibility. So I think the field is getting to a place where there's a lot more realistic models available for a wider range of tissues, but it, there still is this huge variance between whether something is going to be pretty easy to find the right cells to do experiments versus, you know, being very hard. Right. I'm just conscious of the time here because I know we're um, we're we're reaching the end. I I wanted to ask you a little bit of a challenging question. Maybe, well, maybe I'll phrase it as an over under. You mentioned earlier that genomics should be thought of as a as you know not particularly exceptional compared to something like measuring cholesterol. That eventually it'll be probably part of our clinical care. Do you think we will be genome sequenced or genotyped at birth? through national healthcare systems or privatized healthcare? And if so, over under 15 years, let's say, let's parameterize it as in the UK. Here in the UK, will every newborn get whole genome sequenced over under 15 years 
from this uh, date of this recording, December 16th? I'm going to take the under because I'm an optimist. Great. I think it is going to happen because the information, even now, is clinically relevant. I think in certain specific cases, like some of the ones we discussed, you know, that set of use cases will continue to grow. One thing we didn't talk about, which differentiates genetic information from, from some other measurements is it's relevant to pretty much everything. And so if you right. measure it once, you can ask it questions many, many times. That's, you know, so I, I definitely don't think that the first use case is going to be, you know, genotyping or sequencing at birth. Instead, it's going to be this, some of these more specific targeted things. But eventually, I think it's just going to be too valuable to not incorporate. And I think, you know, I mean, we already actually do genetic tests at birth in the UK, you know, and it's in 15 years, it's probably going to be yeah. about the same cost uh, to sequence someone's whole genome as it is currently do the, 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 the heel, prick. To do heel prick test. So, yeah. um, you know, I think it will come. I think I'm going to take the under if, uh, if we're still friends in 15 years, then I can collect. <laughs> I would also take the under. I have to find someone else then who's going to take, who's yeah. going to take the over. I should have made it 10. 10 is, 10 might be. Yeah, 10, is dicier. 10 is dicier. Yeah. <laughs> you still take the under for 10. I might take the over at 10 because it's just uh, actually changing big systems is slow. And I feel like 10 years, I can imagine it not being quite quick enough to catch up. But Yeah, I agree. It feels feels somewhere in between 10 and 15, but I'd be good if it was less than 10. But sure, we'll yeah. see. I, I completely agree that it's going to have to come in a variety of use cases first, maybe breast cancer screening, cardiovascular disease. We're already doing it for diagnostics for rare disease. So eventually there will be so many individual use cases that somebody will will uh, do the very challenging task of getting the whole system to change, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. So uh, is there somewhere people can follow you? I know you've got a Twitter. Do you have a website, Genomics PLC website? GenomicsPLC.com is our website uh, if people are interested in, in uh, what we do or what kind of uh, job opportunities there might be. And you can follow me at JC Barrett with two R's and one T, um, where I occasionally expostulate on these kinds of topics. How did you end up with uh, two R's and one T, despite your last name having two T's? My actual last name has two R's and two T's. Uh, it goes all the way back to I had to pick my username as an undergrad at MIT and you can only have eight characters in your username. And so first initial, middle initial, and as much of your last name as you can cram in. Right. With you ever since. And it's, in fact, it's stuck with me and probably caused me to miss emails and various other things over the, the past 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, that's a kind of strange rule. Is that because of some fundamental limitation on the first computer system? May well have changed since then. Yeah, I imagine so. You probably have as many characters as you want today. <laughs> well great thanks Jeff I really appreciate it thanks a lot Patrick it's been a pleasure 